I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. I'm James and joining me on today's show is Rory and Anne-Marie from the My Wall Street Investing Team. Today, we're talking about the new space race between Virgin Galactic, SpaceX and Blue Origin why a four-day work week might be the future of work. And Rory and Anne-Marie pitch me the two stocks they're most looking forward to seeing earning reports from. Anne-Marie, before we started this episode, before we get into what we want to talk about, you sent me a message um, talking about how TikTok has banned financial advice from its app. And uh, you know, to be honest, I'm quite surprised considering the the nuggets of financial wisdom we've talked about that we, we've seen on TikTok, including people robbing soap from hotels and using the money to buy stocks. Yeah, uh, TikTok announced that they would be banning um, any content having to do with money, assets, loans, and credit cards, buy now, pay later, trading platforms, cryptocurrency, foreign exchange, and a couple other things um, over fears it could be misleading, particularly (laughs) for younger savers. I know. Um, Yeah. And so I think this will just help uh, reduce some volatility and maybe discourage some younger traders to open a Robinhood account and bet it all on AMC. Until they find out about Reddit. Does that include yeah. us? Am I now banned from TikTok? I mean, I'm not on TikTok, but if I was on TikTok... You, you, you have to keep your content strictly to dances, Rory. Okay. You can't. <laughs> so unless you're good at interpretive dance, you can't give any financial advice. What do you mean, unless I am? Of course I am. <laughs> did you, did you done a degree in drama, didn't you? I did. That is yeah. where I started. This, this is where I started this mad journey. <laughs> You played the long game and now it's finally coming to fruition. <laughs> <laughs> this is where you shine. Um, so let's move on. And Rory, we're, we're recording this across Zoom as usual. And I've noticed in your picture that your head has gotten a little bit bigger this week because you followed Nemeth's footsteps and appeared on CNBC. How does it feel to be dragged back down to earth and appear on a podcast like this with us mortals? I've been far more comfortable talking to talking to you guys than I was to Steve <laughs> on CNBC. He's got those piercing eyes, but he took it kind of easy on me. Yeah, well, well, probably the best part of this podcast is that it's not live and that we can edit heavily. Yeah, which we do. <laughs> which we do. If you ever hear a little like jump or or a, a sentence that appears to be going towards a curse word and suddenly <laughs> uh, verges away massively, that's probably an edit. There's um, far but- less edits when I'm not here, though. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's why edit- these are one of the easier ones for Luke to edit. <laughs> Luke, edit that outside of the sneers. Um, so you were on Squawk Box and you're chatting about the so-called space rates that's been heating up um, between the likes of Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin and SpaceX. Of course, that's pretty much all anybody has spoken about this week after Bezos blasted himself and his brother off into space aboard a very suspiciously shaped rocket, in my opinion, but we won't get into that. Um, Richard Branson claims to have beaten him to the punch, though, last week um, in Virgin Galactic. All the, the two are having a bit of handbags on Twitter over what constitutes space travel or not. But Rory, the question I want to ask you is, you know, when you think of space and space travel, for me personally, your mind goes back to like the 60s and 70s and, and the first space race. Why are we suddenly now in 2021 having a, a race between three massive companies and three massive egos to get into space? 
really this is kind of the like the inflection point of a 20 year journey that pretty much all three of these guys have been and been in, um, yeah. involved in um, so so is it, is it reductive to say that this is only coming up now this has been coming for a while it's been building for an awful long time and, and it's because of the advancements the companies particularly companies like spacex and blue origin have made in reusable rockets that's really what has driven like it was completely unfeasible well not completely unfeasible very difficult to imagine a space tourism industry existing when we were going to have to where rockets were just being fired up in the air and then exploding we're never going to see them again we're never going to be able to reuse them again yeah um the you know the most i think it is probably one of the most amazing like tv spectacles we've seen over the last 20 years those falcon rockets landing perfectly in unison you know that was just an amazing sight and it was amazing sight yesterday when the new shepherd pretty much perfectly touched down and stood upright like just (laughs) this is real kind of like weird science fiction stuff careful there with the innuendos rory (laughs) (laughs) um <laughs> throw me off now. <laughs> no, the um, amazing TV spectacle. The but the yeah, it was an amazing TV spectacle. I think what's what's weird is that we tend to categorize these three companies together, kind of group them together, and obviously with their three famous founders, that's probably an element of it. But Virgin Galactic in particular is quite an odd one because it's the only one that I think is almost entirely focused on space tourism. Yeah. Uh you know, both Blue Origin and SpaceX. Have really been building out infrastructure. You know what, what Bezos even said yesterday was building a road to space. That's really their main objective, um, and space tourism is kind of more of a value add really than their actual main objective. Both those businesses, by the way, are generating revenue uh, through haulage. You know, yeah. um, SpaceX. We reckon SpaceX is generating anywhere between a billion and two billion dollars a year on its launch business, which is you know essentially bringing things up into space for other people. Um, and the CEO of Blue Origin, a guy called Bob Smith, said, pr- probably said that they're making money on every single flight. Uh, annoyingly, Virgin Galactic did have a haulage business, but it spun it out in 2017 into another company called Virgin Orbit. Yeah. Um, which, you know, that's kind of, as an investor, that would kind of annoy me a bit. That seems to be the more reliable business, the one that's generating a bit of revenue. That's an important point, though, Rory. So as you mentioned, you know, both Blue Origin and SpaceX are making significant revenues at the moment. But the only one of these companies that's actually public is Virgin Galactic, which mm. doesn't seem to be making any significant revenue anyway. How how do you view that as an investment, as an investor, if you want to get involved in, in I suppose, this space race? Well, I mean, that's just as you said, Virgin Galactic's the only publicly traded one right now. Um, of those three, there is smaller uh, entrance into the into the market. They're coming up through SPACs. Um, but I mean, Virgin, Virgin Galactic was selling itself with this, you know, we've got 600 customers signed up already, including Elon Musk, by the way, we found that out last week, that he's uh, one of the people who has one of those tickets. And they have a thousand more people on a waiting list. But what we were really hoping for after that launch that that Richard Branson was on was that they were going to reopen registration so that we could see get a little bit more visibility um, into what the actual market is here. Yeah. And, you know, look, there's, as you mentioned in the, in the, in the intro to this, it's, is it space? <laughs> you know, for me, that didn't really align with my idea of space travel. What we saw, yeah, we saw uh, yesterday, recording this on Wednesday, so we saw on Tuesday, Blue Origin very much did. You know, yeah. the getting into the vertical takeoff um, rocket and being fired up into space like that. Um, but of course, we don't. We still don't know anything about Blue Origin's space tourism business. Bezos said 
that they have $100 million worth of orders. I'm assuming that includes the $28 million scheduling complex, which yeah. is just the cherry, the cherry on the top of this story. Who, has a, who, who buys a $28 million ticket or something without checking their calendar first? Yeah, <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, it's not exactly like a gig you forgot you booked two years in advance. It's a, <laughs> exactly. it's a pretty, pretty hefty expense. Um, but, but on that point, you've mentioned space tourism there. Um, and, and especially with Virgin Galactic, you know, personally, I thought it was quite impressive, but I, I'd say a lot of critics would say it looked like a very, very, very high airplane ride. Um, but, but what do you think the future of space tourism is? Is there really enough of a market out there of people who are willing to, to shell out such incredible amounts of money to, to go very high and see the curvature of the earth pretty much? Yeah, I mean, this, so there's a real kind of, there's a real wide margin here for so many different variables. Um, I've seen reports suggest that by 2028, the market could be worth about three and a half to $4 billion a year. Yeah. We don't know what assumptions that takes in. Dropping the cost down, obviously, would widen the market significantly. Um, and, but then, of course, there's going to be new entrants. There's going to be new competitors as well. So, you know, Virgin Galactic had their flight 10 days ago and they had a market there for exactly 10 days. And then they yeah. did. Suddenly, they had a major competitor. In fact, you could argue that Blue Origin was actually the first because they... All, all the people who flew on the Virgin Galactic flight were employees. They weren't paying any money. The first person to actually pay a commercial for a commercial space flight was this eighteen-year-old um, guy from Germany, or from, yeah. sorry, from from Holland. Excuse me. Um, so he's become the first person to pay for a commercial flight into space. There actually was, there was a guy called Dennis Tito back in two thousand and one who actually paid for like an eight-day mission into space, but that was done by the Russian. Space Authority, so that wasn't a commercial flight. Yeah, anyway, we're getting to getting bucked in. And, uh, <laughs> you know, when we think about Virgin Galactic, we talk about, right, that's the space, they're definitely into the space tourism. That's their real business. And now they could go into other things. They could get into, you know, zero gravity research. I know they're doing a flight with the Italian Air Force soon. Um, and they, they've talked about hypersonic travel. But of course, these things, they cost a huge amount, There's a huge amount of infrastructure costs that are going to come into this. And we saw that. $500 million raise that they're doing those announced just after the the flight. So there's going to be a lot of capital expenditure into this business. Whereas the companies like Blue Origin and SpaceX, they're kind of using space tourism to kind of subsidize their kind of grander yeah. plans. Yeah. Um, and SpaceX in particular has two very big projects they're working on now. The first is called Starship, which is their new spacecraft, which is going to replace the Falcon line. Um, and that's completely reusable. And Musk believes that that could drop the cost of a flight from about 28 million to 2 million. So by, okay. by, a, by a factor of 10, which would really open up things a huge amount. And then the other project he's working on is called Starlink, um, which is a kind of mad constellation of, of satellites that's gonna beam down broadband energy everywhere in the world, um, which is already kind of, he's, he's, it's already happening. Uh, it's not great at the moment. It's actually more expensive and slower than traditional um, broadband offerings. But the more satellites he can put up there, the better it's going to get, get or, or so he so he claims, and that could end, that could be generating something like ten billion dollars a year in revenue just in the wow. next couple of years. So that's a huge project, and there's even been talks about him possibly spinning that off and that becoming a public company. And well, he'll keep the the SpaceX part, the space exploration part, private. So I it's suppose- a really exciting space. But there's lots of diff- there's lots of different things happening. Like yeah. the three companies really aren't the same. You know, they they they're just. Just because they're linked to space and they have famous founders doesn't mean they're the same businesses and that they're competing for the same same clients. And I suppose the big risk with space tourism, to my mind anyway, is that one accident can just 
could just destroy the industry completely. Yeah, of course. Like we've had commercial aviation for over a hundred years now. We're still averaging fourteen fatal accidents a year. It just takes one accident, and that's the you know that could be the end of one of these companies. Well, the space tourism side of it, anyway. What's your thoughts, Anne Maria? Are you putting yourself on a waiting list to blast off into space anytime soon? Um, no, I I think I. I don't really find the space tourism stuff as interesting as the haulage type of stuff. Yeah. Um, when I took a look at um, SpaceX, like the idea is smart in that by linking the two companies together of uh, Starlink and, and Starship, the idea is that eventually they'll be able to create a reusable rocket that is so large that the price of the secondary haulage that they can contract out basically as of right now the majority of their customers are like the u.s air force and homeland security and the united states government but ideally they would be able to um, basically sell all of the excess space on the rocket and that would cover the cost of the rocket and then they could attach space link haulage that would go up basically for free because they have already offset the cost um i think that has a much like larger opportunity for growth and um just basically means that anything that the company could develop that needs to go into space could effectively go up there for free so then it's just the cost of the technology itself so that is i think what interests me more than the tourism element definitely seems like a more viable way forward and in my in my very very small amount of knowledge of space um space exploration let's move on then and talk about apple so apple looks like looks like it's gearing up to upend a brand new industry after reports that it's working on a buy now, pay later, also known as BNPL, products and shares in the likes of a firm and Afterpay plummeting last week. BNPL is basically short-term financing plans that allow people to spread out payments on larger purchases over time, usually with little to no financing. Apple is reportedly working with Goldman Sachs in the product, whom they've previously worked with on the Apple credit card. And Marie, I'm going to come to you first. What do you think the big opportunity Apple sees is here? I would kind of split the opportunity into maybe kind of three parts. Um, I would say maybe number one and maybe the most obvious is uh, this is going to become Apple Pay later, but I think it'll uh, significantly expand the usage of Apple Pay both in-store and online. And then I would say... Uh, kind of the second and third opportunity is that they can disrupt the buy now pay later space which is quite fragmented and is composed of like a lot of smaller companies Mm. that are kind of quite regional and i think apple having the infrastructure it has gives them quite a good opportunity to maybe take a leadership position in that field and then um maybe controversially i think it actually might allow them to fundamentally disrupt the way credit cards function um so if we kind of go through those points bit by bit, uh, basically the usage of Apple Pay in the United States, particularly in person, has been pretty stagnant for the yeah. last couple of years. Um, I pulled some surveying numbers and it says that only about 13% of the U.S. population have used Apple Pay in person in the last year. Um, that being said, those numbers can be um, a little bit all over the place because Apple themselves actually doesn't release those numbers. Yeah, and I would yeah. say Apple Pay usage is probably stronger in Europe where we've already had contactless card payment for a really long time. I think that transition is quite easy. Um, but anyway, um, the real moat for buy now and pay later companies is how many retail partners that they can get. And so yeah. it means that they're out there trying to sign on as many um, stores and then websites as they can. Well, Apple already has a retail infrastructure. And in the United States, they're signed to something like 85% of retailers. So if they can effectively place uh, Apple Pay later into all of these locations, it would give them a significant moat and advantage over smaller companies that are still waiting to sign these retailers. So you think Apple immediately has a massive head start in this space? Yeah, I think particularly over smaller companies. Yeah. Um, 
that being said, like the real money to be made here um, in terms of the buy now, pay later space is with larger purchases. It's not with these kind of smaller purchases. The way that most of the companies function is if your purchase is under $200, if you can make the um, payments within eight weeks in two-week installments, you pay virtually no interest. So okay. there's not really money to be made there. It's in larger purchases. And that's something that we definitely saw in Affirm's S1, where 28% of their total revenue for the last year was generated from Peloton, who specializes in selling $1,800 bikes. Yeah. Um, and so basically what Apple wants to do with this is if you were to make a larger purchase, the only way that you would be allowed to do it through Apple Pay Later is you have to have an existing line of credit with a credit card company. So then you register your credit card and then say you wanted to buy a Peloton bike. You'd go in and then run the charge through Apple Pay Later and then they would give you a payment plan. So say they would only charge you $200 a month yeah. and then that $200 would get charged to your credit card and you'd probably pay it off immediately. Whereas traditionally consumers would charge the $1,800 to their credit card and pay interest to their credit card company as they made small monthly payments. So effectively, Apple's going to become a middleman between consumers and their credit cards. And if they can keep their interest payments low, it would hmm. make them compete competitive. So then more and more consumers would say, oh, I'm going to charge this through Apple Pay later rather than putting it on my credit card because I'm going to save money over the long term. Yeah. And, and Apple really has, I suppose, the optionality to keep those interest rates low. And when you look at, I suppose, beyond this towards Apple's wider ecosystem, we've heard so much in the last few years how, you know, the real future in Apple lies, lies in these services. So things like the App Store payments and and, and you know, it, it, it's it's not just producing Macs and iPhones anymore. Do you think this will form an important part of that wider services scope? Yeah, and I definitely think Pay Later has a real opportunity to push people into further into the Apple ecosystem. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if down the road, if you're an Apple Pay Later customer, you get an even lower interest rate if you have an Apple credit card. I wouldn't be surprised to see that. And I also know that if you have an Apple credit card, the digital infrastructure that's built into the iPhone for it has a lot of um, debt and spending management tools that apparently people are really big fans of. I wouldn't be surprised to see those get rolled out to Apple Pay later so that people are like, oh, this actually has greater benefits in my credit card. I'm going to use this more. Um, I also would say that Apple has an incredible testing ground in the fact that the vast majority of the things that it sells are high ticket items. You know, think of how expensive an iMac is. Think of how expensive a laptop is. Yeah. Essentially, they can make Apple pay later the default financing within all Apple stores in the world. And then people can very easily be onboarded. And then once they see how easy it is, they might continue to use it in other locations. Yeah. And so I think that's going to be a really powerful testing ground for this. And I think it could be a great um, launch opportunity for Apple Pay Later. Yeah, really increasing, I suppose, the long-term value of customers for Apple. Uh, Rory, you wrote a first look on a firm, which is, I suppose, a smaller competitor company um, from my Wall Street a few months back. How much of a risk do you think this this Apple's incursion is on a firm? Yeah, it's a funny one because you know I'm I'm never one of those people who goes who thinks in terms of well this big company is going after them therefore they're doomed. But when it comes to things like this, I do think consumers will typically follow the path of least resistance. And if they've already got that phone in their hands and they're already using Apple Pay and they've got that relationship with Apple. I can see it becoming quite disruptive to kind of a firm's business. Hmm. That was one of the reasons I was kind of hesitant. We looked at a firm a couple of times um, and thinking in terms of like, would we put them in the app? And it's it's a good business. It's, I do really like the business and I really like the founder. Um, I like what they're doing. I like what their mission is. But there just was a couple of questions over, well, how defensible is this business? Like, you know, it, PayPal, you know, for example, already has great customer relationships and does have a version of what a firm does. And so... You talk about PayPal, you talk about Apple, 
could potentially be one of these things where, yeah, they just get kind of crowded out by bigger players. It'll be interesting to see. I think it'll be very interesting. Apple are very, very good at changing human behavior. <laughs> That's one of the things. I don't know, I don't know if I told this story before, but I remember when I first got the AirPods, I found myself using Apple Pay way more than I had previously. Because what happened was I was walking up to, to, to pay for stuff and I was taking out one AirPod so that it would stop the music so I could hear the person talk. And then I had my phone in my other hand so I couldn't get to my wallet. Both hands were occupied. So I just started <laughs> pushing Apple Pay all the time. And yeah. I was like, only noticed it after a couple of weeks. I was like, oh my God, they're geniuses. They've completely <laughs> changed the way I behave. You know? um, so yeah, look, we'll see how that patterns out. I think it's an interesting um, avenue for them. Yeah, I didn't really expect the conversation on buy now, pay later to take such a dystopian twist. But there we go. <laughs> Um, so moving on then, and the last story I want to cover is one that I purposely kept until Emmett wasn't on the podcast, so he couldn't stop us talking about it. It is, of course, the four-day work week. Hey. <laughs> Sorry, Emmett, if you're listening, I'll give you a right to reply next week. Um, so it's been reported recently that the four-day work week trials in Iceland have been an overwhelming success, with productivity remaining the same, or even improving when workers were paid the same but worked less hours. Um, I think this is particularly interesting considering some of the other news stories we're hearing around labor trends in the US, for example, where many low paid service jobs are actually finding it hard to recruit after pandemic. Um, Rory, I want to come to you first. Do I even need to ask if you're in favor of a four day work week? No, I'm always, I'm, it's something I've read about it over the years. I'm always really, really excited to see either countries or even companies testing it out and seeing success with it. Because um, I think it's such an interesting topic of conversation. Like, you know, is it is it something that we've been looking at a lot more recently because the economy has been pretty good over the last couple of years and people yeah. aren't, you know, aren't feeling that strain a lot of the time as well, you know, depending on kind of where you work. But, um, but you know, all these new conversations have come up around kind of basic income, four-day work week, this work-life balance. And, uh, you know, you say to someone we should have a four-day work week and they go, well, that's that's crazy why would you do that but why would you have a five-day work week they're no it's not a it's no crazier than that yeah um, you know, the original idea was that no one worked on Sundays for religious reasons um then that was expanded to Saturday and Sunday for a for a kind of variety of reasons Henry Ford I don't know if this is true or not apparently uh started the 40-day work week because he wanted his employees to be able to uh, spend time buying his own cars. Yeah, that's definitely. <laughs> yeah, he was kind of looking at us like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm becoming the biggest employer in this country, and all my employees are too tired to take leisure time. So when are they going to ever need a car? Um, but yeah, the example in Iceland is very encouraging. This, you know, some stats have picked up over the years. In the UK, about twenty five percent of all workplace absences or sick days are traced back to just stress, uh, stress at work. Um, so something like that could, you know, very much benefit the productivity of workers. Um, there's also a huge environmental issue as well. You know, I think they could take uh, something like 1.3 million cars off the road a year in the UK if they ended up switching to a four-day work week. Um, and, and, you know, now that we've tested this this new hybrid working model out where people can work remotely and they don't have to come in the office every day, I do think it's something that could be a lot more doable. You know, yeah. it's something, I think a lot of the resistance back in the day was, well, if our clients are working on Friday, you have to be working on Friday. So who's going to cover that that person? But of course, we've come around to solutions for that in all manner of different professions where, you know, you can't you can't have no one in the hospital on Sunday. So you need to figure out a, a, a role uh, um, to ensure that, you know, there's always someone working at a partic at particular times. And well, well, you mentioned you mentioned changes in, in the way we work over the past year and a half, which I think, well, definitely us here are all very aware of. And I suppose 
there's there's a I suppose maybe an increased level of trust amongst um, leaders in companies that you know employees will actually work from home and, and won't just sit there watching TV. And Marie, I'd be interested to get your opinion though on, on what I mentioned kind of in the opening to this, and is that you know on one hand we're seeing a kind of a an extension of benefits and privileges to people you know in in kind of maybe um, more highly paid jobs and and jobs where you are able to work remotely and maybe work four day work week, whereas on the other hand kind of more low-paid service jobs are actually struggling to fill roles. What, sort, what, what do you think of the conflict you see there? What does it say maybe about the, the current um, labour marketplace? Um, I think it was interesting hearing Rory talk about how the 40-hour work week was decided by Henry Ford because he was his workers were factory workers, so he wanted to maximise productivity because they were actually putting out product. And I think we with the way our economy functions currently have the luxury of being able to say, well, we don't work in factories. You know, we're not trying to maximize uh, productivity of producing vehicles. That's unnecessary to us. You know, we can be productive in different ways and, and, and put out the same amount of work. But I do think we're beginning to almost see a kind of breakdown of the way our labor force functions in that we have, um, you know, people who work jobs similar to us that work in offices that work from their computers kind of push to one end. And then on the other end are people who work in the service industries that have to be there in person, who work in stores, who work in restaurants and things like that. Um, and while I would absolutely love to have a four day work week and it would um, be totally feasible for our office, I do think hint, it hint. might put, <laughs> I do think it might push um, the extremes even worse. It might exacerbate yeah. um, the, I would say it would exacerbate some of the socioeconomic issues within the United States and probably all around the world because you will essentially create two classes of people, mm. people who can work in industries where they can get a four-day work week and have a three-day weekend and, you know, are, are less stressed. And then you will have people uh, who are stuck um, in service industries where that luxury is not afforded to them. So I think the only way it will be feasible on a large scale is that I, I would say it has to be implemented at a government level in order to ensure that that benefit is being equally distributed kind of across the socioeconomic classes. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's an interesting insight. So guys, just the final question I have on this then is, you know, as investors, would either of you have any concerns about a company you're invested in trialing a, a four-day or even bringing in permanently a four-day work week? I don't think it would be an issue for me. Uh, as the, the the study showed in Iceland, there, there's, I mean, that was, I mean, <laughs> admittedly quite a small study because Iceland's quite a small country. Yeah. But, um, you know, the signs are that people are more productive, and that's really what you're aiming for in the end of the day: happy employees, more productive employees. What about you? Yeah, Henry? I would agree with Rory. I wouldn't kind of see any issue with it. I know Microsoft Japan, I think, tested it last summer, and they put all of their um, employees on a four day work week and they saw their productivity go up by 40%. And then they were able to save 23% on their electricity and their bills because they didn't have to have the office open on Fridays. So, um, no, I, I definitely think it's an opportunity, uh, for companies and, and also like a big thing that we look for when, um, researching is, is company culture and how the employees are treated and how they feel about their CEO. I think it's a great way to build loyalty within your employee base. Yeah, definitely. So there you go. We're not all filthy capitalist pigs as investors. <laughs> so let's move ah, on. No, to we'll few... <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to a few of the things that are going on in my Wall Street at the moment. And we actually just published a new stock this week. Anne Marie, I believe this is the first stock you personally added to my Wall Street. Uh, yes, it is. Can you give me a quick pitch and see can you do better than Rory's ones or you just goes, uh 
um yeah so the stock uh that we added this month is bumble um bumble is an online dating app uh they own their namesake app and then they also own badoo which is very popular in south america and uh, the southern part of europe um the main thing that kind of bumble is famous for is trying to make online dating more equitable it's a female uh focused company it's something like eight of their 11 board seats are filled by women 80 percent of their employees are women and actually speaking about um employee well-being i think two weeks ago their ceo announced that everyone at the company was getting the week off because she had seen um the effects of burnout on the employees because of covid yeah so um it's 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 definitely a company to keep your eye on they've been seeing really good growth even in the face of covid and the shutdown of all dating venues um so yeah i'm really excited by it it's it's nice to be able to add a company that um you kind of agree with their philosophical messaging yeah, I know you're new to this, Amory, but the idea is not to tell them the company. <laughs> is it? Yeah, we'll, we'll keep it. We'll keep it in. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep, keep it that in. one in. But <laughs> <laughs> there you I go. Bet. There you go. Stock club listeners, an exclusive uh, so, freebie so, for you this month. <laughs> don't don't forget to go. I was just about to say, Rory, that that was almost better than your pitch, except for the fact she gave away the name. But uh, there you go. This you, is be- this is because I'm... I just zone out during everyone else's speaking. <laughs> <laughs> this is why this is why mine are so bad because he springs it on me and I'm trying to say something about the company without giving the whole thing away. <laughs> well, don't forget then you can check out Bumble in the My Wall Street app now and that full write up. And when you mentioned that part about the um about the CEO giving the whole company a week off, Rory, that reminds me of a, a story about my Wall Street where um our, our CEO and, and fellow stock club um contributor Emmett Savage came in one day and decided to give us all our birthday off. Do you wanna recount that quickly? Yeah, it was it was after Emmett's birthday. It was the first it was the first few weeks I was working for the business and Emmett came in. He was very stressed. It was his birthday and he just said, From this day forth, no employee works on their birthday. And that was when there was about three of us in the office. They've somehow managed I don't know if they thought about the economic consequences that would have when we have a company of thirty people, but it's it's maintained somehow. Yeah, well they kept their promise and we all get our birthday off. So definitely one of the benefits of working at my Wall Street. Let's move on to Jargon Busters then. Um so Speaking about another stock in uh, my Wall Street, Rory, not two weeks after making its stock of the month, Zoom has gone ahead and made its biggest acquisition to date, splashing out $14.7 billion to buy Five9. This is a company that develops cloud call center software. I've seen one commentator describe it as a cloud computing software as a service business, which is a new one on me, to be honest. Um, Rory, in the recent Stock of the Month podcast, we talked about Zoom having a pretty massive cash pile, but it's actually paying for Five9 in stock. What does this tell you? Does this suggest that maybe management thinks company the company is currently a bit overvalued and they're taking advantage of it? There's certainly one way to look at it. I mean, obviously, Zoom stock has gone up exponentially since the outbreak of the COVID nineteen pandemic. So there, I mean, there's one way of looking at it where you go right. They have a lot of cash on hand and very little debt. So why have they gone down this route when all stock deals? Surely they think surely that must mean management thinks that the stock is overvalued. Um, but the other argument is that if you look at this business, they only pay a 13% premium for 5.9, which is quite low. You yeah. know, usually when we see acquisitions, big acquisitions, you, they're talking about a 25%, sometimes 30% um, premium. So perhaps this, the, the, the pitch to 5.9 was, look, there's an awful lot of upside left in this stock. So you don't need much of it. You know, <laughs> like that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the kind of the other way you could possibly think of that. Maybe that's what 5.9 we're um we're thinking as well you know five nine it's it's a much smaller uh business than than zoom it generated about uh three quarters of a billion um last year um 
But on paper, I actually think this looks like quite a good deal. It like it diversifies Zoom, it diversifies their revenue streams, and seems like a kind of pretty natural new direction for the company to go in. You take kind of the Zoom phone along with their kind of video meeting conference. It's quite a natural, you could definitely see kind of natural cross-selling opportunities there with kind of Five9 and, and vice versa. Um, I think kind of the next step in all these kind of communication providers is to evolve into what is kind of a more complete solution. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of, that's the direction Microsoft's going in, it's the direction Google's going in. Um, huge, huge acquisition on on paper with a $14.7 billion. Their, their previous biggest one, by the way, was 43 million. So wow. they're really stepping up their game now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's 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 one of those ones that's like, okay, they've made the acquisition. And that's yeah. just it now. Yeah. It's, it's it doesn't seem like there's like it's a it's one you can really talk through quite yet. Yeah. Has has any of your the points you made in the stock of the month report changed based on this? No, I mean obviously you need to kind of add this as a new revenue stream, a new direction for the business. Um mm. But it just seems like it was natural. I think they already had a kind of formal agreement anyway to to try and cross sell products with each other. So, um, yeah, it's I, I imagine it's going to be a kind of bolt on acquisition. Yeah. It's just going Vive Nine is going to continue to operate its business and seems going to continue to operate its business, and they'll they'll try and cross sell to each other as much as possible and try and create better integrations between each other as be, as best as possible. Yeah, exciting stuff. Uh, second question that I had is that we're now staring down the barrel of another earnings season. So I actually just wanted to hear from both of you. Is there any company's earnings report that you're most excited about seeing and why? Anne-Marie, I'll come to you first. Any companies you're looking at closely this earnings season? One company that I kind of have just maybe kept a perpetual eye on is uh, Under Armour. Yeah. Which is actually the worst performing stock in the My Wall Street showroom. So you're really giving away all our stocks today, Yeah, ready. I know. Well, <laughs> I mean, that one that one's not worth anything. Um, <laughs> but uh, they're in the middle of a pretty significant rebranding. They got a new CEO, uh, Patrick Frisk, who mm. uh, used who basically revitalized Timberland. Um, I am I'm, I'm really excited by it. Uh, like six months ago, they um, really started investing in kind of their female athletic apparel, and I think that that is a a place that could be disrupted because I think we have Lululemon, which is on the high end, but Lululemon, I don't think is really branded, nor do they make products for high performance athletes. Mm, Whereas yeah. I think Under Armour does fill that void. And they've put out a number of um, products in the last kind of six months that have really drawn attention. And on top of that, Nike has kind of alienated some of their female athletes. Simone Biles just walked away from her Nike contract as did Allison Felix. Um, so I think if they could kind of pivot their way towards this, I, I think it could be a a, a bit of a, a rebuild for them. So yeah. um, I'll, I'll be having a look at their upcoming earnings. Yeah, interesting. Under Armour is really one of those companies that I actually I use their products quite regularly, but it's just it's bad investment at the moment. So hopefully uh, your, your thesis plays out there. Rory, what company are you looking at? Business that we've been keeping an eye on closely with the potential uh, the idea of potentially adding it to the my wall street app is roblox yeah um, and roblox along with along with an awful i mean there's a lot of companies that are kind of in the same ballpark here but one of those companies who certainly did see a big boost during the pandemic um so you know this is the kind of this is the earning season now where we're probably coming out coming out of that idea of the pandemic play or the stay-at-home play so I'd be quite interested to see how that company's revenue growth is held up with economies opening up a little bit more over the last couple of months. Um, 
it's a it's a very interesting business so when i dived into this idea of the metaverse the microverses <laughs> it's a it's a real rabbit hole and you know anyone who wants to go to go there go there between that and space exploration i think we uh <laughs> i think we've covered quite a quite a breadth of information in this podcast um Cool. So that was Roblox. Let's move on to our elevator pitch then to, to finish it off. And I'm just aware that question there was actually kind of like an elevator pitch. So you're getting two elevator pitches for the price of one at uh, this podcast. Um, so Anne-Marie, you came up with a suggestion for this week's elevator pitch was to pick your favorite terrible ticker symbol. So I want to hear <laughs> absolutely no investment advice based on this at all, by the way. But I just want to hear which um, ticker symbol, which company ticker symbol you guys love for all the wrong reasons. Anne-Marie, I'll come to you first. Okay, I have well the 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 inspiration for this piece was obviously Krispy Kreme, which IPO'd recently and yeah. decided to pick the ticker D Nut, which <laughs> is tragic. But I have a second one after doing some research. So IQ actually runs an ETF for Australian small caps. Yeah, would anyone like to guess what the ticker? Oh, I do is? know this one. Oz O Z. No. Um. I, I don't know. It's K Roo, as in kangaroo. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Yeah. The 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 Krispy Kreme one is is D nut. Is that a reference to donut or D's nuts? I would say both. <laughs> <laughs> really digging back into the the old old memes there, Rory. What about you? Um, there was one that was for. I'm not sure if it's even still going, but it was for a um agri business ETF, and its ticker symbol was moo. <laughs> Again, I like it. I like it. Um, <laughs> the one I always like, hated was Apple because it was yeah. A-A-P-L. Because yeah. I, I, yeah, like, I think I started spelling Apple wrong for a long time. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it throws you. You spell the ticker symbol wrong, like A-P-P-L for so long, and then you start spelling the actual word Apple wrong. And that's kind of the, the life cycle of an investor, I suppose. So that's it from this week's Stock Club. If there's anything you want us to discuss or explain in the next episode, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ or email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review or a rating for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. That's it from us here today. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. <laughs>